Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, to another Deep History episode with Danger Zone and Rad Dad 2023. Guys, we got a hell of an episode today. I mean, ladies and gentlemen, we're back. I, well, yeah, there we go. We're back. We've had delays. We've had BS. But you know what? We're going to get history on your butts. If there was a... Okay, look. Record scratch on this music. That's not working for me. I need some... some I need something exciting. Because I think that this this has often gotten the, like, the, the, the bad end of the stick when it comes to wars. Like, as far as is how people perceive this 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 thing cuz i think it's pretty intense like it's that it, it to me it's 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 important to some people we'll say the canadians when it comes to their sovereignty uh to the brits and the americans though i don't think it's a big fun happy fun time what do you say no, you're you're exactly right yeah this is uh going into this uh episode uh this war meant much more to canadians than it did to i think americans and the british british couldn't really be bothered they were busy with napoleon but the americans yeah go ahead look i I do want to say one thing, though. Let's paint it. It's a theatrical trailer of the War of 1812. The White House is on flames. In flames. The British are coming. The British are coming. Triumphant cannons. Blast. Ah, oh, my guts. Oh, no. It's just, it's just an incurable disease. I'm shitting everywhere. Oh, I took a soft bullet to the face. Somebody patch me up. Dolly Madison runs as James Madison trips because he's got bad vision. Meanwhile, a man, a lawyer, sits in a harbor, decides as he sees an American flagged pen the Star-Spangled Banner. His name is... What was his name again? <laughs> Francis Scott Key, man. What the fuck? Uh, what are you doing? I'm sorry. Well, I need... I need... <laughs> I'm trying. Um, Canada is... Canada. It's north, man. They dream of donuts and coffee and hockey. Meanwhile, we got a thing to say to Britain. They're busy fighting the Napoleonic Wars, and that's enough of a backdrop to get my history mind warm and ready. But you know what? War is on the horizon because trade is an issue. Look, as it as it stands at the time after 1803 when we had the Louisiana Purchase, 
our population had basically doubled. 36 years post-Rev War one, And at this point, the British, the British, had taken like 4,500 ships. That's, that's, that's not a small feat. I mean, literally, they would come on there, and we're talking pirate age here. These guys are just like, this is my boat. <laughs> and the British would come on there and be like, well, y'all, y'all going to serve a different master now. And if they said Are you something, the British pirate. Is no, that what we're doing. The, the British were the real pirates here. <laughs> British sea power was no joke. Anyway, that was my trailer. I just wanted to, sh to to paint it. I mean, there's some other things we'll get into. And I love the British. Are you good and ready? I'm I'm warm and ready, and hopefully the listeners are too. And you can see us on the YouTube's. I got my Zelda shirt on. Adams rep representing Genesee. Beer and ale. I tried to uh, I try to uh, wear a shirt that's uh, relevant to the podcast. So, uh, given that much of the War of eighteen twelve <clears throat> took place around like Niagara Falls, Buffalo, St. Lawrence, all fucking New York, and a lot of Michigan. True. Uh, Genesee uh, Brewing Company is in Rochester, so it's pretty close. I didn't have anything to wear other than this. This was the closest I got. And I represent the theatrical music playing in the background of an epic, say, like Zelda, trying to raise the bar on the War of 1812. Or as my man, my main uh, source in the book I would recommend for this, a book by a man named Don Hickey who wrote a book called War of 1812, The Forgotten War. It doesn't need to be The Forgotten War, though. You guys need to learn. When we eventually cover, cover the Civil War, this is kind of a connective tissue and also a sister episode to the Napoleon episode. Because if the whole time we were doing Napoleon, you were saying, But Red Dead, what, what about America? Well, here you go. Uh, I mentioned the Louisiana Purchase. Do you want to talk pre-War of 1812, kind of like what was going on? Yeah, so like the lead up to to uh, the War of eighteen twelve, right? It, um, Lee, you said at the beginning it had a lot to do with trade and commerce. Um, the Embargo Act uh, kind of set things off as far as like American policy goes. Mm -hmm. The British and the French obviously were uh, just in you know just war. I think they've been at war since like the beginning of time. Uh, but anyway, I mean, they, they needed um, the other side to hurt economically. And so the United States, uh, Thomas Jefferson, started pushing the Embargo Act. And basically it made, uh, it made trade with either country um, illegal. It was basically the prohibition of imports um, from outside, uh, you know, from Great Britain, from France, from anywhere. The following act kind of excluded it to those two countries in particular. But yeah, so there was there was all sorts of uh, trade wars going on. Tomfoolery. Tomfoolery. I'm trying Tom to speak Foolery. in the dialect of the time. 
but yeah, I mean, it was uh, the the embargo act kind of fucked up uh, our economy, uh, but at the same time, it it helped us, um, I guess, produce more domestic goods because we weren't getting the imports from foreign countries. Well, but sometimes at the same time, we weren't trading. <clears throat> sometimes there's good stuff that happens when we get put in a bind. It makes us have to think on our toes. And I think that's a byproduct of that. Um, I want to squash something here, too. I hear a lot of people say, Ryan, Rad Dad, what about Hamilton? What was Alexander Hamilton doing? Well, I just want to squash a few misnomers out there. Alexander Hamilton was kind of a shithead. Uh, people might not understand what a Federalist is. And I think the best way to put it into con- context of the time, Adam, you, you know what... Because you mentioned Thomas Jefferson. He was a Republican. They, they had the Republics, Re, Jefferson Republicans or Republics. Can you kind of break down? Democratic Republicans. Yes. I'm sorry. That's, yeah. a, big, that's a big word to forget there. Um, <laughs> but the Federalists at the time, they were against big government. Right? Uh, the Federalists were against the war. They wanted, um, fuck, now you got me screwed up. I'm the sorry. Federalists, they were uh, they were for strong central government. So Alexander Hamilton, you mentioned um, mm-hmm. first secretary of the treasury. Right. Yeah. Yeah, but the Federalists in general were against the war, specifically in New England territories uh, because they relied on trade, on Atlantic trade, um, boats coming in and out. And so they thought that a war with Great Britain would just annihilate their their commerce. And it's essentially what happened for at least short term. Agreed. Uh, but I wanted to touch on I wanted to touch on that mostly because it, it I think a lot of people assume that that um there's this at the time, like after the Revolutionary War, we were all like pretty, like in sync. But I think there was a lot of people who, well, I. Long story short, Hamilton said democracy was a virus. Like th- th- these certain people thought that like we needed to squash, basically people. I, I think I, I don't think people understand that 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 he was against democracy as as a whole at the time, um, and was more happy to fill the coffers of his wealthy friends at the time. Jefferson was awesome. He had slaves, but he was awesome. We're still. I'm saying this is from Rad Dad's perspective. They should have made a. They should have made a musical called. <laughs> the, Aaron Burr. Look him up. He was third vice president, and he was under Jefferson. He did a lot of good things during the time. He was actually against slavery and all this other stuff. There were good people at the time, but they should have made a musical about a sickly-looking nerd named Aaron Burr. Look him up. Future episode. Anyways, that's all I wanted to get out of the way. This is all in the lead-up to War of 1812. Um, Speaking of Canadians, 
We've got a song in the background called Come All You Bold Canadians. Success unto our volunteers who did their rights maintain and to our bold commander, General Brock by name. Oh, Brock! Sir Isaac Brock, that is. The original Mountie man. Ooh! Again, Isaac Brock's a, sort of a national hero. Yes, he is. Canada. And to our Canadian friends, we say... How stands the glass around? A song and music of the Redcoats. Uh, anyway, there'll be a playlist in the episode description. I just thought, you know, do you want to talk on uh, the Canadians a bit? Cause, well, how do you want to do this? You want to start from the beginning of the war? Like what tipped it off? You know, like we, we obviously we I'm talked all over about the, the map trade wars. tonight. I'm sorry. Yeah, you're, <laughs> there was no there was no outline for this episode folks it, we're just winging it all right look here's the deal if you want me to go through the whole thing from the beginning i didn't know if we wanted to say some things up top i granted we're almost 15 minutes into it and we've just been thinking around but i had to get some things out of there out the gate all right we uh, we can go in order or we can jump around let's jump uh, let's, doesn't matter let's jump into it right off the bat because some people might want to know like Let's talk Canada at the time. Canada. Canada. Isaac Brock. What do you know about Isaac Brock, Adam? Isaac fucking Brock. Um, he was. Um, he was like, a, what would you call him? Like a governor, general. Um, I don't think they really. Oh, it was just oh, like. I don't think it. I think everything was so brand new. Like, everything is in its infancy. So... Yeah, I mean, he was a pretty big deal, right? He was... He, he wanted to be... Um, I think he... From reading about him and, and watching some of the documentaries that I watched, I think he really wanted to be, like, a very prominent British officer. Uh, maybe war hero. I'm not sure. He became one, I think, in his own right with what happened. Um, yes. Him him dying in battle gloriously and his men carrying out the task at hand. Um, but I think, uh, you know, he was an aristocrat through and through. Um, he had a couple easy, I, I mean, I don't know if I want to call it easy, but like some of the, the beginning battles, uh, Fort Mackinac, um, like there wasn't even a shot fired and the fort was surrendered. So Brock got the, you know, glory for that. And then, um, I mean, Detroit, that's pretty, that's pretty badass. Well, apparently what happened there was the, the American commander of the forces at Fort Mackinac didn't even know the war had started. So that's, like, that's Michigan for you, dude. <laughs> so, yeah. So Brock and his guys show up and they're like, you know, we're here to war, and this guy's like just uh, getting we, done eating his Cheerios, and he's like, puts, puts down his founder's IPA, and he goes, "Man, I just want to rock. I don't want to. I don't want to roll. I just want to hang, bro. You want to smoke <clears> some <throat> Saginaw ditch weed and hang out? We're, yeah, we're from Michigan. We don't want to fight. The the first two, uh, I guess." battle or i don't even know what the fuck to call him but 
that took place in Michigan was uh, Fort Mackinac and Fort Detroit, and both of them were, like, done before any shots were fired. Detroit, I think there was a little skirmish here and there, but, like, that whole thing, if we, I don't know if we're going to get into that whole battle, but, like... Oh, it's embarrassing. The General William Hull ordeal. Like, oh, just, he's a bitch. Dude, he was a bitch. So here's the deal. This motherfucker, he was so terrified of Indians. He's like, oh, they come in the night. They're going to put a curse on me. They got magic sticks and no haunt my bones. I'm too scared. Like, he literally, he was, like, crying. He's like, oh, God. Oh, oh, please don't let me go to battle. And then they, like, surrender. We surrendered. Hey, folks, news alert. We, Americans, first country we ever surrendered to was Canada. Because this guy was scared of Indians, partially. In one of the in one of the documentaries that I watched, um, apparently, so Brock and Tecumseh had arranged their men outside of Fort Detroit, and they were marching them past the fort, and then they would do a big loop around, and they would come back, and they would just keep looping around. So it looked like from the outside that there were thousands of troops like marching outside the fort when it was really just a small number. Mm-hmm. And given given his uh, the fear of natives, seeing all these you know Native Americans passing by the fort, probably dressed in war paint, you know, yep. all ready to roll. Yep, dude, this guy was shit in his pants. Mm-hmm. Filled Apparently his pantaloons. Got, got wasted, drooling all over himself. He was like, I can't. I can't do it. I didn't know war meant we had to kill people. Fuck. The Indians are going to are gonna cast a spell on me. I surrender. Yeah, so, it, it look, Brock it was a great dude. He was a major general, uh, British Army, uh, colonial administrator from Grenessee. Brock was assigned to Lower Canada in 1802. Despite facing desertions and near mutinies, he commanded his regiment in Upper Canada, part of present-day Ontario. Been to Ontario, beautiful country. Canada's great. I got nothing but happy things to say. Shout out to our man Justin on the Discord. This one was your suggestion. You're the man. While many in Canada and Britain believed war could be averted, Brock began to ready the army and militia for what was to come. When the War of 1812 broke out, the populace was prepared and quick victories at Fort Mackinac and Detroit defeated American invasion efforts. So I think Canada specifically was worried that we were going to take over and say, hey, Canada, you're America as well. And despite what historians, scholars of this war have said, the main reason really was trade. It, it it wasn't about adding Canada to America. It was about America and their efforts in expanding the colonies beyond, not just into Canada as it being America as well, but really just striking down the British influence because British strength at the time was spread we hoped for a quick victory and especially with them having to deal with the man of the hour at the time napoleon emperor of 
basically what he called the world. Things seemed like they were going to be an easy one, too, but you had people like Brock who were quick to move. And I think Brock was an incredible adversary to have to face, especially during the time. But, like I said, you know, when it came to the... The American ships, a lot of them were just privateers. A lot of the people that were on the sea. I mean, we had like, to put it into comparison terms, I sent you this text. It was basically like a middle school football team versus the New England Patriots on sea. Like, British sea power was nothing to mess with. And we, we thought... We could pull a quick one, and a lot of it was, you know, mismatched and spread thin. And unfortunately, we weren't able to stop Brock. And good on him. They got their sovereignty, ultimately. As a country, Canada, granted their... I mean, I guess they shed a tear when Queen Elizabeth died, but... Anyway... The war. Yeah, the, Go ahead. The, just real quick, the thing with yeah, I guess I don't know if we would have taken over Canada and made it into like this whole new territory, but Brock is credited with preserving Canadian sovereignty, uh, and I think that's why he's so uh, celebrated. Totally. I mean, I, I I'll I'll fucking admit I didn't. I've never heard of this guy, or maybe maybe I did years ago in studies at some point, but like I didn't really know about this guy up until I started looking into the War of 1812 for this episode. And I mean, this guy's a big deal in Canada. Totally. And I feel kind of stupid uh, that I don't know who he is or never well, had heard of him. I mean, that's why we do this stuff, man. I mean, I I appreciate it. And if I ever go up to Ontario again, I'll definitely go and visit, like, some sites and, you know, cheers a Diet Coke to his name. Eight months sobriety well, today. Just saying. <laughs> Eight months sobriety. Damn, congrats, dude. Thank you. But. Yeah, go ahead. No, I think he's a hero. I think, and rightfully so. And and you know, I'm I don't mince words when I say heroes when it comes to history. I I, I talk about and I look through these things, and I enjoy myself a, a tale or two about the past. And he's he did his work for his country. I mean, you don't get Canadians until this really happens, this point in time, and you know. It does attribute itself to things like the British, and and unfortunately, you know, when this war ends, the the winners are Canada. The losers are the Native Americans. Uh, oh, hundred percent. Yeah. So let's let let's really dive in here. The War of eighteen. Dive it in. The War of eighteen twelve was fought by the U.S and its indigenous allies against the United Kingdom and its own indigenous allies in British North America with limited participation by Spain and Florida. As I said to you in text, 20 Spaniards died. Rest May they rest in peace. So I looked it up afterward. I don't know if it took place, but there was a battle of Pensacola. So oh, it was shit. 
Spanish, Florida. It could have been there. I don't know. I didn't look it up. <sighs> well, rest in peace, friends. Uh... It began when the United States declared war on 18 June 1812, although peace terms were agreed upon in the December 1814 Treaty of Ghent. The war did not officially end until the peace treaty was ratified by Congress on 17 February 1815. Tensions originated long-standing differences over territorial expansion in North America and British support for Native American tribes who opened or, sorry, who opposed U.S. colonial settlement in the Old Northwest. These escalated in 1807 after the Royal Navy began enforcing tighter restrictions on American trade with France and press-ganged men. They claimed as British subject, uh, even those with American citizenship certificates. So, like I said, little tugboats out there with Americans on it were basically subverted into British forces yeah so so let's let's talk about this for a second because it was the it was the biggest reason for the war right was the impressment of of, of american sailors whether they be american born or british born irish scottish whatever um they would seize our vessels and take people off the ships and make them serve in the royal navy it was a huge deal um during the same time great britain passed what's called the Orders and Council, which goes back to like this whole trade thing. <clears throat> so Great Britain would require anybody trading with France to stop, obtain like a license or pay uh, some sort of tax and duty to the government or the, the crown of Great Britain before they would go and do their trade with, with France. Now, I'm, I ask myself this over and over. Like, how the fuck did they enforce this? Like, when there's all these ships, I don't know, sailing across... I've never sailed across the Atlantic Ocean. I've flown over it, but what? I've never sailed it. But, like, where the fuck are... Like, how do you enforce this? If it's, like, aren't there ways around? Am I this dumb when it comes to navigating the oceans? Well... How are they going to... How are they going to take it? Well, I mean... I guess probably some got true, but like... You mean to tell me you were in the Navy and you were never on a boat? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I got that every time I told somebody I was in the Navy. No, man, I was in Greece. Look. I was on the pier duty. I was on pier duty, brother. You know what? I'm a survivor. I'm a veteran of the Reykjavik Wars on my liver. <laughs> Yeah, well, I don't know. It, it just uh, it just baffles my mind that, that the way you know, like the embargo act, right? How do you cut off trade with the outside world? Imagine if we were to do that right now, like you oh, know, I we know. can like during the Trump administration, he raised tariffs and whatnot. You know, kind of started his own little trade war. But how do you just? The world is so globalized now. That, like you can't just like not trade with anybody. Canada is our biggest trading partner, if I remember correctly. Um, just it just it just baffles my mind how things were well, it may, able to be. It, it it's an it's an easy fix for Britain because they just take whatever boats they see. America's just like you know, 
I'll slide some coin under the table, look the other way. And maybe there's a 50-50 shot you get across the Atlantic. But, I mean, there's different, there's different routes you can take at the time, depending on where you go. You just can't straight shot it right into the port of London or whatever. You know, you got to do some tomfoolery. <laughs> oh. I almost spit my drink out. <laughs> you, you, there's, some, there's some Mediterranean routes you might want to take. You might want to go south. You might want to go the other way. It's just, uh, yeah, I, I, there there was different ways that they would go about things, you know, and, and I'm sure there were ways to pay off British officers, too, unless you got some anal retentive guy who was like, no, sir, I will not take this. I will charge you with the whip of my cat of nine tails. You know, like they 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 would do things and they would and it would suck because there was no um I'm sorry I am from Kentucky sir and this is the boat named after my mammy they would just be like no um this boat is now the USS Primrose or whatever British bullshit they want to call it and when we are taking your your loaves of bread because we suck up all the good shit. Meanwhile, I mean, Napoleon knew that the best way to fight against the British was to cut off their trade. So, meanwhile, he was using that against them. Uh, a powerful motivation for the Americans, according to historian Norman K. Rejord notes, uh, was their threatened sense of independence, too. So you got to think... Uh, it, even though the Revolutionary War happened, and it and by ninety eight or sorry seventeen ninety three, they basically said, "Okay, fine, fuck you. You got your independence." There was some real sense of like, "No, no, no. We're our own country. Damn it. We're a big kid now." We had to kind of put our foot down, and we wanted to uphold this kind of sense of national honor and in the face of what they consider British aggression, uh, insults such as the Chesapeake Le leopard affair. Have you heard of this? It was a naval um. engagement off the coast of Norfolk, Virginia on June 22nd, 1807 between the British fourth rate HMS Leopard and the American frigate USS Chesapeake. The crew of Le Lepard, Leopard pursued, attacked, and boarded the American frigate looking for deserters from the Royal Navy. So when things like this would happen, they'd be like, Hey, bitch, that's our ship. Yeah, the uh, the Leopard. Yeah, I took one little note regarding it. They, uh, yeah, they killed like three or four sailors and uh, British boarded and took some of the deserters that were on on the on the ship on the Chesapeake. Yeah, dude. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's not cool. Just but it was commonplace, I think. Well, I, yeah, probably, but this probably is... not to this extent, but like going on to these ships and taking these guys off. Right. Like that was big that was a big issue. So Britain was the largest trading partner of the U.S., receiving 80% of American cotton and 50% of all other American exports. The British public and press resented the growing mercantile and commercial competition. Historian Reginald Horseman states that a large 
section of influential British opinion thought that the United States presented a threat to British maritime supremacy. That's how he talks in my head. During the Seven Years' War, Britain introduced rules governing trade with their enemies. The Rule of 1756, which the U.S. had temporarily agreed to when signing the Jay Treaty, which was the Treaty of Amity, Commerce, and Navigation between His Britannic Majesty and the United States of America, commonly known as the Jay Treaty. Uh... There's just this, like, again, I, I've talked about this before. There's this, there's the pencil-pushing John Adams way, and then there's the four-score-and-fuck-your-mother way, cowboy way of getting things done. And there were pirates, and there were British sea officers, and there was muskets, and then there was democracy is a virus. I'm a federalist. There was a lot of different ways to get things done, whether it be with coin or with a declaration of independence. I don't know. This is a this is a this is a tricky time, folks. And usually the best way to show you mean business is war. Yeah, the United States was not in any position to start a war with Great Britain at the time. Nope. I mean, let's let's be honest. I mean, we were still a relatively new country. We didn't really have a standing military. There was just militias all over the country. You know, half-assed training. It's militias that won us the war to begin with that we had just fought. I know. I know. That's true. I I'm just... More credit. I'm we the militias helped us win the war that we had just won and now we didn't have a standing army 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 really we didn't have a navy didn't have an army we had ideas about what to do we're really flo- we're flying by the seat of our pants here we're kind of just coasting and what happened here again it's basically our second war of independence, but it's it's really more about setting setting a precedent and saying like, hey, we are independent. You can't take our stuff. You can't push us around. You're a big bully. Go fuck your mom. Basically. Um, so I get where we were coming from. And inevitably, um, I don't know. Again, like I said, there wasn't really a winner in this whole thing. And we're gonna keep we're gonna keep going through um, whether the annexation of Canada was a primary American war objective has been debated. Um, I will say, in basically inciting or playing devil's advocate to that argument, it wasn't a complete non-option. Like, I'm sure there were political leaders or people at the time. I'm sure even Madison, who was pro-going to war. We haven't really talked about James Madison, who was the president at the time. He was into the idea of going to war. Like, he was war-hungry. He would have probably said, we're at war now, if it wasn't for the fact that Congress had to vote for it. Yeah, I think he was one of the original war hawks 
uh, at the time. There was there was a, quite a number of them, but his, yeah, James Madison was definitely one of them. His wife, who was this Dolly, who was this beautiful woman, according to historians, was quite a bit younger than him. And uh, he was like this nebbish kind of Nixony nerd, like war nerd guy who just liked to, to um, you know, sit and read his books and be like, I, I like to learn about Alexander the Great and war and all that other stuff and blah blah blah. And then this happens, and he, I think he was pretty happy about it. But um, Nevertheless, even though uh, President Madison claimed permanent annexation was not an objective, he recognized once acquired it would be difficult to relinquish. A large faction in Congress actively advocated this policy, including Richard Mentor Johnson, who stated, quote, I shall never die content until I see England's expulsion from North America and her territories incorporated into the U.S., John Adams Harper claimed the author of nature himself had marked our limits in the south by the Gulf of Mexico and on the north by the regions of eternal frost. So there was kind of an idea of like, yeah, maybe maybe we could have America too upstairs. I don't know. I just wanted to mention that. The land of eternal frost. That's right. I think we're pretty close to that land. Uh, you and I both are probably what two hours from canada two hours from canada yeah yeah i mean when i was a kid because of the drinking age people would drive over there it was 19 yeah i never got that excited about drinking uh, when i was in high school but i mean fucking we went to greece when we were 19 and mm -hmm. we were legal to drink so yeah it all worked out uh yeah, it it wasn't that. It it, it was. It's That's a long way to go for just a beer. Or yeah, a yeah. Or just, just to get shit house. Just at, at that point, you're probably just puking in the back alley. <laughs> Somebody's like, "Oh boy, I think that's his first Molson." Uh, so invasions of Canada in 1812. An American army commanded by William Hull invaded Upper Canada on July 12th, arriving at Sandwich. After crossing the Detroit River. Yes, Windsor, Ontario is called Sandwich, according to my notes. His forces were chiefly composed of untrained and ill-disciplined militiamen. Hull issued a proclamation ordering all British subjects to surrender or the horrors and calamities of war will stalk before you. Fun. The proclamation said that Hull wanted to free them from the tyranny of Great Britain, giving them the liberty, security, and wealth that his own country enjoyed unless they preferred war, slavery, and destruction. Now, again, a lot of black men fought for the British because they told them they would be free. So, in Canada, there were... African-American men who fought for them, or the British, if you will. Uh, Hull's proclamation only helped to stiffen resistance to, to the American attacks as he lacked artillery and supplies. Hull also had to fight just to maintain his own lines of communication. 
Hull withdrew to the American side of the river on 7 August 1812 after receiving news of Shawnee ambush on Major Thomas Van Horn's 200 men who had been sent to support the American supply convoy. Half of Horn's troops had been killed. Hull had also faced a lack of support from his officers and fear among his troops of a possible massacre by unfriendly indigenous forces. A group of 600 troops led by Lieutenant Colonel James Miller remained in Canada attempting to supply the American position in the sandwich area with little success. What's your favorite sandwich? (laughs) My favorite sandwich? Yeah. Um... Everybody wants to know Danger Zone. Uh, I love all sandwiches equally. Uh, God, I don't know. Uh, Reuben. Nice. Maybe a grilled ham and cheese. Grilled ham and cheese. I'm going to go roast beef with some horseradish. Is that right? Horseradish? Yeah. Roast beef and horseradish? Yeah, sure. And a wheat, fresh, or no, sourdough. Sourdough bread. Toasted. Uh, yeah, and a, and a big old dill pickle. I've really started to like uh, sourdough and, and rye bread in my older age. I just like it. I do too. It's nice. It's, it's it's a good change up from the old wheat or white. You know, just yeah. having a little bit of spice in your in your bread. All I needed as a kid was hillbilly bread and peanut butter, but now I'm like, give me some flavor, toast it, <laughs> slice of so cheddar. Yeah, you know, I grew up. I didn't. It, my, I, I mean, my parents were divorced growing up, but I didn't. Neither of them had anything, and uh, I. I grew up with not, not a lot in the, in the house, in the refrigerator and in the cupboards, but I used to make this sandwich. Not a, It wasn't a sandwich. It was just white bread with mayonnaise, and I would sprinkle pepper on it. <clears throat> now imagine what that looks like. Piece of bread, mayonnaise, pepper. To me, it looked like bird shit. So I called that my favorite snack was called bird shit on bread. <laughs> that sounds like something your dad would say to you. And it looks like bird shit. Fucking Adam's I don't, I don't know if that's ever again. thing, but that was my that was my go to uh, snack. That and and uh, dry ramen, just crunch up ramen in a pack and just pour the seasoning in it. Don't cook it or anything. It's just like oh god, you probably had the weirdest popcorn. looking kid shits. I think my oh, kids. Were I don't know. T- <laughs> I think my kids <laughs> been ugh, gross. Dry. I eat anything, man. Yeah, dude. Dried up ramen is like having a bag of potato chips. What are you, a fucking possum? I I, maybe. Yeah, I don't fucking know. You have a raccoon. Tasted good. It's probably why when I got into the Navy, they replaced all my teeth because they were all cracked and chips from fucking raw ramen noodles. He's just, he's just gnawing on an MRE. No, Adam, you're supposed uh, to heat it up. Fuck that. I'm hungry. We didn't have a microwave. I don't know. And we, I, I wasn't allowed to use a stove, maybe. I don't fucking know. I just made food all the time. (laughs) (laughs) The more you know. Interesting. All right. So 
After Hull surrendered Detroit, General William Henry Harrison took command of the American Army of the Northwest. He set out to retake the city, which was now defended by Colonel Henry Proctor in Tecumseh. And we haven't really talked about Tecumseh. He's an interesting chief. <sighs> I yeah. feel he was a he was a he was a main character in the story, dude. Yeah, we should hit on uh, Tecumseh here. What do you know about the indigenous uh, at this time, Tecumseh? Yeah, so he was a what was he Shawnee chief? Yeah, he, he was he was basically trying to uh, bring together a confederacy of tribes, uh, and uh, he wanted to push back against that American expansion that we were talking about earlier, and um, his his whole I guess mission was to bring tribes together and to get the support that they needed to resist American expansion uh, into native land. Right. Well, they wanted yeah. a good deal to come out of it. Hopefully something that would benefit them. You know, um, it really, 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 really sucks when people are just moving in and forcing some some sort of like current modernity and civility of like American or not even American, but like British culture. And it just doesn't, you know, the indigenous people are definitely people who understand the land, understand they, they're here. They're, they're the original homeowner. And then these tenants move in and they're like, well, now we've going to, we're going to drink our tea and eat our crumpets. And, uh, and then um, we're gonna wear these weird fucking powdered wigs, and uh, and 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 then and that's cool, right? And they're like, uh, "We have different ways, white man. Do not give yeah. us your blankets. Yeah, I mean, they make us sick." <laughs> yeah, he. I mean, he was he was allied with with Brock, obviously. Um, yeah, you mentioned Proctor. I think him and Proctor kind of butt heads on a lot, a lot of things. Um. But yeah, that that's gotta be a tough position at the time, because you're basically you're fighting and allying with you know a white man who basically come from the same place in Europe. You know, obviously this is much later, so there are American like American born people that he's, he's dealing with. But at the same time, it's uh, <clears throat> he, he probably had a lot of distrust and. Uh, I would would think so, yeah. And I think he'd be pretty fucking sad if he saw the way things had happened and rolled out in the next hundred years after that. Yeah. And I I think the sad part about this is going back to the very beginning when you said the biggest loser and all of this, uh, this just, you know, war, which essentially happened for no reason, was the Native Americans. Mm -hmm. They didn't get shit. Tecumseh, when he died... Yeah, um, spoiler alert. Oh, shit, yeah. Battle of the Thames. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. No, we'll talk about the Thames. But let me let me give you a little brief about Tecumseh here. He was a shot, like Adam mentioned, Shawnee chief. Pour one out for your Shawnee chiefs. And warrior who promoted resistance to the expansion of the United States onto Native American lands. A pervasive, or persuasive, sorry, orator. Tecumseh traveled wildly, forming a Native American confederacy and promoting uh, inner tribal unity. 
even though his efforts to unite North Americans ended with his death in the War of 1812, he became an iconic folk hero in American, indigenous, and Canadian popular history. Uh, in 1805, Tecumseh's younger brother, Tensequata, who came to be known as the Shawnee Prophet, founded a religious movement that called upon Native Americans to reject European influences and return to a more traditional lifestyle. In 1808, Tecumseh and Tensequata established Prophetstown, a village in present-day Indiana. That grew into a large multi-tribal community. Tecumseh traveled constantly spreading the Prophet's message and eclipsing his brother in prominence. Tecumseh proclaimed that Native Americans owned their lands in common and urged tribes not to cede more territory unless all agreed. His message alarmed American leaders as well as Native leaders who sought accommodation with the United States. In 1811, when Tecumseh was in the South, Recruiting allies, Americans under William Henry Harrison defeated Tensequata at the Battle of Tip Canoe and destroyed Prophetstown. In the War of 1812, Tecumseh joined his cause with the British recruited warriors and helped capture Detroit in August 1812. The following year, he led an unsuccessful campaign against the United States in Ohio and Indiana. When U.S. naval forces took control of Lake Erie in 1813, Tecumseh reluctantly retreated with the British into Upper Canada, where American forces engaged them at the Battle of the Thames. Uh, that Lake Erie battle sucked. It was shallow water, and I don't know if you've tried to bring in a bunch of British ships into shallow water. You just play and park and sit. It's not good, man. <laughs> I mean, it's not deep. <laughs> well, we talked about it with the Teddy Roosevelt thing, and I mean, this is... This is like a hundred years earlier to that when they were trying to bring the horses and the men into Cuba and they're all just like, well, we lost like the first three guys jumped off and drowned. We don't have much for regulation. Like Teddy lost one of his horses and he's like the main guy going there. You know, I mean, these battles he probably had it mounted afterward. I don't know. We thought we had shit shows in our day. Hey, hold on. Speaking of Teddy and his animals and the fuck you did Jim Carrey without me, I can't believe that. I know I'm the history guy, but I, dude, I even made a Jim Carrey reference on that last Teddy episode, and I fucking saw you posted Jim Carrey episode on, on Spotify or some shit. That's right. I was like, All right, is, it, is this guy kidding me? It's a good I'm problem. like the biggest, I know. I'm the biggest freaking Jim Carrey fan there is out there. You know what? Not to get off too much of a tangent, but uh, I just watched after I saw you uh, do the, the Jim Carrey episode. I um for the very first time, the only Jim Carrey movie I haven't seen was The Truman Show, and I watched it for the very first time the other night. That's an awesome. Never movie. seen it. Yeah, never seen it. Uh, was uh yeah, it's pretty good. And if I don't see you again, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. <laughs> yeah. It's a great was, movie. Uh, I love yeah. the end of that anyway. movie. Uh, no. Yeah, where he walks through the fucking thing where he's like, where he, he hits the hits the wall in his little dinghy or whatever the hell yeah. he is, his little sailboat. Yeah. 
No, he he says, Ed Harris, you can take your finger and sit and spin on it, buddy. I'm out. Um, Why does Ed Harris always play the biggest prick in these movies? I've heard he's not... uh, I've heard he's not that friendly of a dude outside of acting, but he's an amazing actor. He's really good. Yeah, when he started trying to, like, sink a ship, I I was getting mad at him. Yeah. You're being dumb. Uh, Anyway, so Tecumseh, there's a little bit about Tecumseh I wanted to kind of bring you up to speed on. Um, So... The Mississippi River Valley from 1813 to 1815 was the western frontier of the U.S. in 1812. A territory acquired in the Louisiana Purchase of 1803 contained almost no American settlements west of the Mississippi except around St. Louis, and a few forts and trading posts in Boone Slick, Fort Bellefontaine, was an old trading post converted to an army post in 1804, and this served as regional headquarters. We're talking like pre-Wild West here, folks. Uh, Fort Madison was built along the Mississippi in Iowa in 1808 and had been repeatedly attacked by British-allied Sauk, or Sack, uh, a group of Native Americans of the Eastern Woodlands culture since its construction. The U.S. Army abandoned Fort Madison in September 1813 after the indigenous fighters attacked it and besieged it with support from the British. This was one of the few battles fought west of the Mississippi. Black Hawk played a leadership role. Black Hawk was a sock leader and warrior who lived in what is now the Midwestern United States. So the Indians were out, and they were primarily with the Brits. I know I mentioned indigenous that fought with us, but um, I think a lot of the times it was because of some sort of agreement or bartering or with the muzzle of a gun. I can't say we fought this one cleanly, nor have we. I think the only good war after being into history for a long time for me... Maybe the Second World War? I don't know. Everything else is... It's so gray when you go through this shit. Um, yeah, there's a lot. But real quick. Go ahead. When, dude, they, there, were, there were so many treaties signed and so much land given up. And I think that's an important point to make here. I mean, that's a recurring theme of Native Americans being the... the losers in this thing is that like so you're talking about you know down south during this time which really wasn't there wasn't a whole lot going on down there like when we did the revolutionary war episode we talked a lot about the southern battles but during the war of 1812 there wasn't really anything down south outside of you know the battle of new orleans is obviously the big one but like even andrew jackson signed you know he 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 uh negotiated these treaties where we saw Native Americans giving up millions upon millions of acres of land. Um, The Treaty of Fort Jackson, which uh, took place in uh, spring of 1814, that was, um, you know, basically 23 million acres handed over. It became basically Alabama and Georgia. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, just going back to what you're saying, um, yeah, 
Tecumseh died and just everything fell to shit. And they just signing treaties and trying to make peace and giving up land. And it, it really forged the rest of the 1800s, the rest of the 19th century, as far as like American uh, policy regarding Native Americans. Uh, it, and they just, to this day, probably still getting fucking short end of the stick, man. Suck. Yeah. Uh, I mean, <clears throat> there's two points I want to hit on in this. Um, you mentioned Tecumseh dying in that that uh, the Thames, but like part of part of you got to remember too. These guys they lose when you when they would lose a commander like that or a figurehead. I mean, we even hit on it in the Revolutionary War when one of the generals went down. Uh, the the rest of the the chickens in the coop would would start running around like their heads got cut off. They don't. When you don't have that leader there in battle, specifically, it becomes such a like clusterfuck. And um, not to say that Indians were weren't you know incredible in the field. I mean that we used their tactics in battle as well, like concealment, camouflage, things like that, attacking from behind, uh, from vantage points. Uh, there were different things that we gained from fighting with them. There was different things that we um, we learned specifically about the lay of the land. But uh, I think at this at this time there was that. But then there was also um, it's sad, really, in re in retrospect too, because all you're gonna get from the folk music of the time is how great we were at fighting the Indians, but it was really kind of a travesty what was really happening. Um, both sides placed great importance on gaining control of the Great Lakes and the St. Lawrence River because of the difficulties of land-based communication. The British already had a small squadron of warships on Lake Ontario when the war began and had the initial advantage. The Americans established a Navy yard at Sackett's Harbor, New York, a port on Lake Ontario. Commodore Isaac Chauncey took charge of the thousands of sailors and shipwrights assigned there and recruited more from New York. They completed a warship, the Corvette USS Madison in 45 days, ultimately almost 3,000 men at the shipyard, shipyard built 11 warships and many smaller boats and transports. Army forces were also stationed at Sackett's Harbor when they camped out through the town, far surpassing the small population of 900. Officers were housed with families. Madison Barracks was later built at Sackett's Harbor. I want to talk about that because the Revolutionary War, we had about 3 million population overall in the colonies by 1812 we had doubled up to about 7 million so people were screwing and having babies uh, which is good you want people to be doing the things that they're best at fucking fighting and farting um, so on May 18th, or sorry, May 25th, 1813, Fort Niagara and the American Lake Ontario Squadron began bombarding Fort George. An American amphibious force assaulted Fort George on the northern end of the Niagara, Niagara River on 27 May and captured it without serious losses. 
The British abandoned Fort Erie and headed towards Burlington Heights. The British position was close to collapsing in Upper Canada. The Iroquois considered changing sides and ignored a British appeal to come to their aid. However, the Americans did not pursue the retreating British forces until they had largely escaped and organized a counteroffensive at the Battle of Stony Creek on 5 June. This the British launched a surprise attack at 2 a.m., leading to confused fighting and a strategic British victory. See, when you attack the armies, especially when the leaders aren't corralling them, people get confused, and that's just what happens. So, yes. Um, let me see here. Do you want to talk about... Um, let's see... Uh, do you do you have anything you wanted to talk about as far as about with James Madison and like his presidency overall? We should probably hit on him. I mean, we've hit on Tecumseh, we've hit on Brock. I alluded to him having a younger, pretty wife. We could fast forward to the uh, burning of Washington. Yeah, you can fast forward. I mean, I don't really have anything to say about Madison. I mean. I mean, with regards to the war, I mean, he definitely was, you know, he's the one who sent the damn war declaration to Congress, um, you know, with all of us gripes and complaints, which we've already uh, discussed. I mean, it was the, the war declaration in both the Senate and the House were, were essentially everybody was for it, with the exception of the Federalists in New England. And so I actually have the vote counts here. It was 79-49 in the House and 19-13 in the Senate. So it um, goes to show how early we're on uh, mm -hmm. just because the lack of, you know, what's that, 32 senators and roughly 130 in the House. So, I mean, there wasn't, the, there wasn't this enormous population in our government uh, to debate everything. I mean, it was pretty lopsided as far as um, the war declaration and, 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 and moving on. But yeah, I don't really have much to add to Madison. I mean, that would be a whole episode we could do. Yeah, and I, I'm I'm totally happy. Mm -hmm. Like, I loved, I love uh, learning about presidents or uh, leaders, military leaders in their lives, specifically in this time, because it's always fascinating to me to find out, like, when they got an interest in politics or, like, how they started, how they kind of moved through the their course of history and, like, kind of what was going on at the time. Um, but to get to the burning of Washington, in August 1814, a force of 2,500 soldiers under General Ross had just arrived in Bermuda aboard the HMS Royal Oak. Three frigates, three sloops, and ten other vessels. Released from the Peninsular War by victory, the British intended to use them for diversionary raids along the coast of Maryland in Virginia in response to Provost's request. They decided to employ this force, together with the naval and military units already on the station, to strike at the national capital. Anticipating the attack, valuable documents, including the original constitution, were removed to Leesburg, Virginia. The British task force advanced up the Chesapeake, routing Commodore Barney's flotilla of gunboats, carried out the raid on Alexandria landed ground forces that bested the U.S. defenders at the Battle of Bladensburg and carried out the burning of Washington. 
U.S. Secretary of War John Armstrong Jr. insisted that the British were going to attack Baltimore rather than Washington, even as British Army and Naval units were on their way to Washington. Brigadier General William H. Winder, who had burned several bridges in the area, assumed the British would attack Annapolis and was reluctant to engage because he mistakenly thought the British Army was twice its size. The inexperienced state militia was easily routed in the Battle of Bladensburg, opening the route to Washington. British troops led by Major General Robert Ross, accompanied by Rear Admiral George Cockburn, the 3rd Brigade, Brigade, attacked and captured Washington with a force of 4,500. On 24 August, after the British had finished looting the interiors, Ross directed his troops to set fire to a number of public buildings, including the White House and United States Capitol. Extensive damage to the interiors and the contents of both were subsequently reported. U.S. government and military officials fled to Virginia, while Secretary of the United States Navy William Jones ordered the Washington Navy Yard and nearby fort to be razed in order to prevent its capture. Public buildings in Washington were destroyed by the British through private residences, though private residences were ordered spared. They burned our fucking White House. That sucks. They did, man. It was uh, it was uh, uh, retribution for for what we did at York. That was the whole. That was the whole thing. I will say Dolly Madison made sure that they took one of the prim, primo portraits of general, former general of the army of the U.S. Colonial Army and president, first president George Washington. Yeah, the Gilbert Stuart painting, mostly which is still in the White House. Right, they took that because the British saw him as a. Complete and total piece of shit. And they wanted to take a dump on it. And we were like, no, sir. He's a hero. Don't take our Washington. There was a a quote in the PBS documentary about the burning of Washington. And I I wrote it down because I thought it was funny. Oh, Um, yeah. He said, the guy they were interviewing in the documentary, he said, uh, Washington, this is, quote, Washington was a swampy, mosquito-infested, malarial town of just 8,000 people, full of tree stumps and refuse. Oh, it's a horrible place to put the fucking capital. It's just a gross, and now you can't drive in it to save your penis. It sucks there. Yeah, you definitely uh, you get backed up driving around there. As someone who lived there for six years, I know what it's like. You gotta sl- you gotta solve a fucking sorcerer's riddle to get to one street, and then you gotta fucking touch your walk on one leg and touch your nose and fucking say the alphabet backwards to get the code to go through some transport <laughs> to get somewhere else. It's all backwards, man. And there's some that believe it was a secret, nefarious Illuminati spell placed to put it in a place. It's just a fucking mosquito-ridden bog. But yeah, now it's I, hot and humid in Washington. 
It, it's unnaturally hot. It's like Cuban heat. But anyway, there was a siege on Fort Henry, McHenry. After taking some munitions from the Washington Munitions Depot, the British boarded their ships and moved on to their major target, the heavily fortified major city of Baltimore. Because some of their ships were held up in the raid on Alexandria, they delayed their movement, allowing Baltimore an opportunity to strengthen the fortifications and bring in a new... New federal troops and state militia units. The Battle of Baltimore for Baltimore began with the British landing on 12 September 1814 at North Point, where they were met by American militia further up the Padipsquaw Neck Peninsula. An exchange of fire began with casualties on both sides. The British Army commander, Major General Robert Ross, was killed by snipers. The British paused, then continued to march northwestward to face the stationed Maryland and Baltimore City militia units at Godley Wood. The Battle of North Point was fought for several afternoon hours in a musk, musk, in a musketry and artillery, artillery duel. So muskets and cannon fire. The British also planned to simultaneously attack Baltimore by water on the following day, although the Royal Navy was unable to reduce Fort McHenry at the entrance to Baltimore Harbor in support of an attack from the northeast by the British Army. The British eventually realized that they could not force the passage to attack Baltimore in coordination with the land force. A last-ditch night faint and barrage attack during a heavy rainstorm was led by Captain Charles Napier around the fort up the middle branch of the river to the west. Split and misdirected partly in the storm, it turned back after suffering heavy casualties from the alert gunners of Fort Covington and Battery Babcock. The British called off the attack and sailed downriver to pick up their army, which had retreated from the east side of Baltimore. All the lights were extinguished in Baltimore the night of the attack, and the fort was bombarded for 25 hours. Damn. The only light was given off by the exploding shells over Fort McHenry, illuminating the flag that was still flying over the fort. The defense of the fort inspired the American lawyer Francis Scott Key to write... The Defense of Fort McHenry, a poem that was later set to music as the Star Spangled Banner. America, America, God shed his grace light on thee. Hell yeah, brother. <laughs> That's uh, not the Star Spangled Banner. <laughs> I know, man. I know, you know. I'm just saying, it was an important... He was a lawyer. But he was there for... Uh, at the time, for good reasons. Um, Wasn't he getting his buddy out of jail or something? Basically, something what, like that. Uh... I'm, I'm looking it up. Key was a lawyer in Maryland, Washington, D.C. for four decades and worked on important cases, including the Burr conspiracy trial. And he argued numerous times before the Supreme Court. He was nominated for district attorney for the District of Columbia by President Andrew Jackson. Ooh, he's a future episode. President from 1829 to 1837. American lawyer as well. 
Planner, general, and statesman. Seventh prez. Future episode. Also a populist president. I love the story about his big party when he got inaugurated. Had like a four. Yeah, had like a four day party because he said all of the Americans can come and party. They had to literally throw the kegs out on the lawn because people wouldn't leave. They were just getting fucked up the whole time. And then he was like, all right, shut the doors. And then, <laughs> like, people are just out on the lawn, just like, yeah, Jackson. Jackson number hey. one. Just shitting in the fucking White House, just rancid beer shits. We can't get these fuckers out of here. Well, you had to say everybody could come, Mr. President. Shit. Forgot about that. Anyway, Francis Scott Key was an important guy. Because he wrote the Star Spangled Banner, you fucking goofs. But it's important. Yeah, yeah so uh, I, I know I texted this. I was going to save the story for, for a surprise. But yeah, I texted this the other day. Um, I went to school with a girl. Her name was Ashley Key. And she was uh, a locksmith? Francis Scott Key. Yes. <laughs> Ashley worked on keys. No, her last name was Key. No, um, so I, I told you the other day that the uh, that the author of the Star Spangled Banner, Francis Scott Key, has been a name that has been like burned into my brain since I was in probably like second grade, third grade, because that's when I was in school with Ashley. She, I don't know whatever happened to her. She moved, um, I don't know, sixth or seventh grade, but. <clears throat> Yeah, her name was Ashley Key, and um, I have a very vivid memory of that uh, in elementary school. That she was, uh, she was like the great, great, great granddaughter, or whatever, of Francis Scott Key. Just, just an interesting memory related that's, to this uh, the story. That's cool, man. You're part of history, brother. <laughs> My uh, three degrees separation from Francis Scott Key. Yeah. Or six. Yeah. <laughs> In 1813, Creek warriors attacked Fort Mims and killed 400 to 500 people. The massacre became a rallying point for Americans. The Creek War. You know about that? Nah, I didn't. I didn't take too many notes on that. I mean, obviously. Uh, heard of it, but um, well, it was an internal affair sparked by the ideas of Tecumseh farther north in the Mississippi Valley. A faction known as the Red Sticks, so named for the color of their war sticks, had broken away from the rest of the Creek Confederacy, which wanted peace with the United States. The Red Sticks were allied with Tecumseh, who had visited the Creeks about a year before 1813 and encouraged greater resistance to the Americans. The Creek Nation was a trading partner of the United States, actively involved with British and Spanish trade as well. The Red Sticks, as well as many Southern Muskegee people like the Seminole, had a long history of alliance with the British and Spanish empires. The, this alliance helped the North American and European powers protect each other's claims to territory in the South. What? And I see the Chattahoochee River comes up in my notes here. I just wanted to say Chattahoochee. <laughs> 
Dad a poochie. I'm an Indian outlaw. Half Cherokee and Chakwa. No, you're not anything. Uh, Didn't like... I don't know, man. We don't... We don't... <laughs> what is that? Who is that? Way Chattahoochee? down yonder on the Chattahoochee. I don't know. And I did a lot of scrubs. Not about living in a little battle. Oh, my God. Uh, We're going to get... We're gonna oh, get lambosted, flambosted. I, I know who thinks that. I just can't think of the guy's name. The Indian frontier of western Georgia was the most vulnerable, but was partially fortified already. From November 1813 to January 1814, Georgia's militia and auxiliary federal troops from the Creek and Cherokee indigenous nations and the states of North Carolina and South Carolina organized the fortification of defenses along the Chattahoochee River and expeditions into Upper Creek Territory in present-day Alabama. The army, led by General John Floyd, went to the heart of the creek, Holy Grounds, and won a major offensive against one of the largest creek towns at the Battle of Otasi, killing an estimated 200 people. In November, the militia of Mississippi and combined 1,200 troops attacked the Aconcha encampment in the Battle of Holy Ground on the Alabama River. Tennessee raised a militia of 5,000 under Major General Andrew Jackson and Brigadier General John Coffey and won the battles of Tallahassee and Talladega in November of 1813. Jackson suffered enlistment problems in the winter. He decided to combine his force composed of Tennessee militia and pro-American Creek with the Georgia militia. In January of 1814, however, the Red Sticks attacked his army at the Battle of Emma and Enotopcha Creek. Jackson Jackson's troops repelled the attackers, but they were outnumbered and forced to withdraw to his base at Fort Strother. So, just to give you some idea before we get into the finality of this war, um, presidents, and this time specifically, used to be generals and fought in wars and knew their foes. Um, in this case, Andrew Jackson would have for sure been face-to-face with some Native Americans in battle. I want that to just go in your back pocket for later on when we cover Andrew Jackson. Yeah. Um. So, that, so wait. So when this was in November of eighteen thirteen, you're reading November to January area of eighteen thirteen to eighteen fourteen. So I, I yeah, because I was, uh, I was focusing on like what was still going on up in like the. Still, Americans were still trying to get into Canada at this time. Yeah. Like October, November, winter of 1813, they were trying to push to Montreal. I don't know if you got any notes with, uh, regarding their the efforts to try to, like, take Montreal. But, like, there was two generals, mm-hmm. U.S. Generals Hampton and Wilkinson. Yep. And they were going up to St. Lawrence, basically, to try to take Montreal. So, at the same time, I said earlier... There wasn't a whole lot going on in the South, which I guess I was sort of wrong because there was there was all this stuff going on with Andrew Jackson and the Creeks. And everything yeah, and that's that's why Georgia I wanted to bring area. that. Up. That's why I wanted to bring that up, just so people could get like a overall perspective of what was going on in in all directions. Um, yeah. 
anyway, in, in July, we're going to f- keep going with the... He keeps f- going back. British aid to the Red Sticks arrived after the end of the Napoleonic Wars in April of 1814, and after Admiral Alexander Cochrane assumed command from Admiral Warren in March. Captain Hugh Piggott arrived with two ships to arm the Red Sticks. He thought that some 6,600 warriors could be armed and recruited. It was overly optimistic at best. The Red Sticks were in the process of being destroyed as a military force. In April of 1814, the British established an outpost on the Apalacola River. Cochrane sent a company of Royal Marines commanded by Edward Nicholas... The vessels HMS Hermes and HMS Karin and further supplies to meet the Indians in the region. In addition to training them, Nicholas was tasked to raise a force from escaped slaves as part of the Corps of Cornell Marines. In July 1814, General Jackson complained to the governor of Pensacola, Mateo Gonzalez Manrique, that combatants from the Creek War were being harbored in Spanish territory and made reference to the British presence on Spanish soil. Although he gave an angry reply to Jackson, Manrique was alarmed at the weak position he found himself in and appealed to the British for help. Woodbine arrived on 28 July and Nicholas on 24 August. The first engagement of the British and their Creek allies against the Americans on the Gulf Coast was the 14th was the 14th September 1814 attack on Fort Boyer. Captain William Percy tried to take the US fort hoping to then move on Mobile and block United States trade encroachment on the Mississippi. After the Americans repulsed Percy's forces, the British established a military presence of up to 200 Marines at Pensacola. In November, Jackson's force of 4,000 men took the town. This underlined the superiority of numbers of Jackson's force in the region. The U.S. force moved to New Orleans in late 1814. Jackson's army of 1,000 regulars and 3,000 to 4,000 militia Pirates and other fighters, as well as civilians and slaves, built fortifications south of the city. And I want to talk about this for a second. This was like a hodgepodge, like everybody and their grandma. Like, I don't care what your creed, religion, background is, we're fighting these fuckers off. Jackson is just a motley crew of individuals at this time. Like I said, again, fighters, pirates civilians, slaves, everybody. Little Timmy with a bad leg. He's got rage, and he's ready to show it. There, there was a there was a point made in, in something that I read or watched that the orders that Andrew Jackson put out for the Battle of New Orleans had to be translated into, obviously it was English, but it had to be translated to French, um, Spanish and Choctaw. That's right. Because there was so many people, like from different backgrounds and different, you know, just walks of life, all gearing up together. The British Army had the object- objective of gaining control of the entrance of the Mississippi. To this end, an expeditionary force of 8,000 troops under General Edward. Pakenham attacked Jackson's prepared defenses in New Orleans on 8 January 1815. The Battle of New Orleans was an American victory as the British failed to take the fortifications of the East Bank. 
The British attack force suffered high casualties, including 291 dead, 1,262 wounded, and 484 captured or missing, whereas American casualties were light, with 13 dead, 39 wounded, and 19 missing. 13 dead, that's like 10 of them just accidentally drowned, and 3 of them got diphtheria or crabs. Yeah, I mean, this was one of the most lopsided victories in the war. And probably one of the most lopsided victories of, of like, the mil- American military history, I think. Yep. Um, they, just, they just got wiped out. But because news didn't travel quick, there was no email, there was no phone, things went slow. No. You had that whole uh, spin still going on. So when people were like, Oh, did you hear Jackson? And he's a war hero. 1850 Battle of New Orleans, we're victorious. Fuck you, Brennan. Hey. It is what it is. Good news is good news. And good word of mouth is good word of mouth. But it was lopsided, as Danger Zone said. And it basically kind of ensure and in, ins at this point. Between the Napoleonic Wars and us being like just a swarm of bees in uh, the British's bonnets, per se, uh, Britain was over having wars. They were done sending people around. I think they were war-tired, and I think even though, like I said, it ends with the treaty in 1815 as well, uh, the Treaty of Ghent. Uh, I I don't think there was much fight to be had after this. Uh, After deciding further attacks would be too costly and likely to succeed, the British fleet withdrew from the Mississippi River on 18 January. However, it was not until 27 January 1815 that the land forces rejoined the fleet, allowing for its final departure. After New Orleans, the British moved to take Mobile as a base for further operations. In preparation, General John Lambert laid siege to Fort Bow. Bowyer, taking it on 12 February 1815. However, HMS Brazen brought news of the Treaty of Ghent the next day, and the British abandoned the Gulf Coast. And that's the War of 1812. Do you have anything else you want to say? <clears throat> um, yeah, no, that sucks, man. Battle of New Orleans didn't even have to happen. I mean, the it just how slow shit moved back then. I mean, we've discussed this previously with the Revolutionary War, just how how slow everything moved. So, yeah, I mean, you just have all this, uh, you know, this it's battle. kind of nonsense. It's it's like I remember one time somebody was telling me um, that there were still Japanese people like 10 years, 15 years, 20 years after World War II that still thought the war was going on. And that's with telephones and Morse code and, you know, a huge, uh, a way bigger population being able to, like, you know, tell people, say, the news of the day or whatever. It's just crazy to me to think that the way communication went, during this time and how battles were fought and how 
little people well because even during revolutionary war we talked about those two british generals where one was just like waiting for the other to show up and the other guy's just like no i I think i'm gonna go and uh, take philadelphia and then you know like it's just like come on guys like i mean granted we live in the day of texting and and it's it's like instantaneous like it it just it's it's just a it's just a shit show and it's always been a shit show. But guess what, guys? We surrendered to Canada. So this one goes out to the Canadians. We love you. Anyway, General William Hall surrendered to Canada. All right, that guy was a giant pussy. That's true. <laughs> there's the clip for the episode. Oh f- boy! All right. Hey. We got to give a, a shout out to our American Canadian brother, uh, shipmate. That's true. Uh, Will Boardman. Oh, what's up, Boardman? You're the Love man. man. Uh, is a good friend of ours in the Navy, uh, stationed in Greece and Iceland mm-hmm. together. Yeah, yep. it, I, I and it lives in Guelph, Ontario. Yeah, which I is right. The fucking smack dab of this shit. I haven't seen him in a long time, but he's a great guy. Shout out to Will. He, uh, he I'm, I'm pretty sure in the Navy he was a sober, sober fella. So I, I'm, I'm with you now, my man. He always had a great taste in music. Great, one of the best conversationalists I think I've ever met in my entire life. Used to just love to talk, and and I, I miss those conversations. I, so yes, yeah, shout out to Will. Hope you're well. And doing well. Um, anyway, so which, 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 how, how do you want to end this, man? Do you got anything going on or anything you want to point people in the direction of? Yeah, no, I like everything, dude. There's so much material. It's hard to cover every single thing, every single battle, every, you know, there's, there's, there's a million things that I took notes on and, and, and it didn't even come up. <laughs> it didn't even come up. Yeah. I mean, it's hard, dude. It's, there's so much shit and trying to squeeze into, you know, hour and a half, two hour episodes. It's hard. um, I mean, again, I, I wrote out a thing and then I threw it away because I was like, no, there's, I, it's kind of based on our conversation where I went. I mean, you, like you mentioned, you, there wasn't a lot that you knew about the South. So kind of went in that direction to lead up to the battle of New Orleans I wanted to hit on Brock. I wanted to hit on the fact that this, who the winners and losers was and kind of be blunt about it, but it's an interesting war and it's, and it's, uh, you know, as Dan, Don Hickens in his book says, it's kind of the forgotten war. And I didn't know much about it. I mean, I knew Tchaikovsky had written the song uh, about the war of 1812, but I, that's not even about, our war of 1812 that's about the russians versus the french um anyway check us out i think there's a reason i think there's a reason why that you know we don't really learn a whole lot about the war of 1812 as americans but you know going to you know our public schools because there wasn't nothing really changed for us right it's It's all it's all i mean fodder for leading up to the civil war yeah, yeah. I mean, it was just yeah. There's, there was obviously some big things that came out of 
the war of eighteen twelve. But you know, I, overall, I mean, the United States and Great Britain, <clears throat> nothing really changed. Canada kind of held their own, and Native Americans got screwed, like seems they always have. So it just kind of a if if you're asking me for my opinion. <clears throat> War of eighteen twelve was kind of pointless. Agreed. Pour one out for your Shawnee Chiefs. <laughs> uh, like us on Facebook. Like us on Instagram. Instagram.com slash easy podcast. Email us episode suggestions like the episode tonight. This one goes out to you, Justin, uh, as well as Will. And also please like and subscribe to our YouTube. It's under the link's in the description. Also want to give a huge shout-out. New Glassfield is literally almost... The mixes are almost done. There's a song on the album. was called You Are My Machine that was played in a little band called Middle Children of History that the man I'm talking to tonight played bass on at the time. Uh, it's got to be weird to hear that song 20 years later on an album that's about to come out with vocals. Yeah, I mean, I listened to it, dude. It, it definitely just rips like it, it rips a lot better than it did <laughs> when we wrote, or you know, where when we played it back in like two thousand four or three. <clears throat> and that other shit that you sent me, I gotta send it, or, or I gotta, I gotta listen to that too because it's all good. I lo- yeah, I love it when you push out music, man. You Glassfield and all your bands, you've always been in. I, I love listening to them. Thanks, man. You're you're one of my best friends and a brother to me. I love you. I love that we get to do this. It's one of my favorite things. What should we cover next time? What do you think off the top of your head? Yeah, I don't know. Um, you wanted to do that one with the, the Game of Thrones. Oh, the Planet Genets? Yeah, I mean, God, I started looking at that. That would take so long for me to get up to speed because I don't know shit about it. And then, uh, I mean, but if we wanted to stick to, you know, political characters or, or history, you could just, like, draw a name out of a hat. That's <laughs> or true. draw a, a, an event out of a hat. You know, I I don't know how modern we want to get, but, you know, if we're covering wars, I would, I would love to come into... 20th century. I would love to do World War II. Um, World War One, even. Yeah, we could yeah, do World um, War. We could do a World War One series. But there's there's there, there, there's so much, dude. There's so much. I agree. I don't know. We'll 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 text but, about it. But yeah. if you if you have a suggestion, zanzizipodcast at gmail dot com. Hit us up. All right. That's been your episode. We will see you next week. We love you. Thank you for dealing with a little bit of a pause. I didn't do two episodes last week, but here you are. A big fat War of 1812 episode. We love you. Have a great one. Recording stopped.
This has been a presentation of Beer City Media.